For the last few weeks, as uh, those of you that are with us regularly know, we've been looking at the book of Judges. Um, book in the Old Testament, early in the Old Testament, in the story of the people of God. And um, I hope that along the way, as we've been just sort of looking at what, how has God been dealing with his people, that it's been raising thoughts and issues and reflections for you that have been helpful. Certainly, from my perspective as someone who has kind of taken the responsibility of reading and thinking about it, it's just, there's just lots in the book of Judges that both um, are inspiring, but some that are quite shocking and but all the way, I'm trying to think, well, actually, how does it help us think about what it means to follow Jesus? One of the things that, um, one of the things that when we, we read the, the Bible together, when we read as Christians what we're doing, is we're wanting to ask all the time, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to put Jesus first in this sort of context? And today, what I want to do is, is think about power and leadership, really but do it through the lens of a story that might not be so well known. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn, to me with, uh, turn with me to Judges and chapter 8? It'd be really helpful, actually, if you could get a Bible open. That would be probably helpful if you're kind of not sure where Judges are. It's towards the beginning of the Bible. You go through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and there you've got Judges. I'm going to pick it up in the end of chapter 8. Last week we were looking at the story of Gideon. And I want us to think about power and how we exercise power. Now some of you will be sitting there going, I don't know if I have much power. But actually all of us have power of some description or other. Some of you have got formal, almost positional power. You lead families. You have a power and authority that engages with children. You're part of community groups or you've got a a responsibility at work, might be in church, but there's something that other people look to you and they go, actually, they have a responsibility, they're leading something. But actually, all of us use power all the time. It's in your relationships, the, the encouragement you give one another, or indeed the disapproval. And uh, some of you know what it feels like to be in a, just a friendship where you know the other person is just disapproving of something you're doing. And you can't just shake it off. It's kind of like it has real authority. It has real power. And you kind of always need it to navigate. How do you deal with that? And equally, when a friend of yours is just encouraging you, you blossom. They haven't got formal power, but they're using a form of power. And you're blossoming it because of it. And today what I want to do is think about how do we use the power that we have and the authority we have for the good of others. So at the end of Gideon's story, in verse 29, this is what was written. Um, Verse 28. Midian was subdued before the Israelites and didn't raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, now that's a, a kind of another name for Gideon, so we're talking about the same person. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live, and he had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. <laughs> Mike's going, what? <laughs> I had three kids and that was enough. <laughs> um, 70 sons because he had many wives. Now this is clearly not to be recommended, and my point of the sermon is not uh, to do that. His concubine 
And there's another thing. What? A con- what's a concubine? Well, a concubine was kind of like an accepted, recognised mistress who wasn't a wife. They didn't have as much positional power as a wife. They were kind of... But it was kind of like... It, it, was, it, it was accepted. Um, anyway, his concubine, who lived in Shechem, a place, a cosmopolitan city, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizrites. Just say it confidently, Neil, nobody knows. (laughs) No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals, these other gods. They set up Baal, Berith as their god, And they didn't remember the Lord, their God, who'd rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he'd done for them. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them, and to all his mother's uh, clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's Sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I'm your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's related to us. And they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Bereth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And when Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves, and they said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and human beings are honoured to hold sway over the trees? The tree said to the fig tree, Come, be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, Come, be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and human beings to hold sway over the trees? And finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, or the bramble bush, Come and be our king. And the thorn bush said to the kings, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. And then Jotham said, Have you acted honourably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and he risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you've revolted against my father's family. You've murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and you've made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he's related to you. So have you acted honourably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you haven't, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out of you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. And then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. 
And after Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. So they acted treacherously against Abimelech. Now, this is a story that you probably are not that familiar with. Okay? And some of you are going, I never knew that story was in the Bible. It's been there all the time, but it's just not that familiar. So let's just actually begin to think about what's going on in this story. What I want to do is illustrate it with the story of Abimelech's power grab, because that's what this is. It's a power grab. But let's, let's just go through the story bit by bit and see what's going on. Firstly, he comes from a no position. He is the concubine's son. So he's not got the natural position. He comes from a really low down position where everybody else would look down on him. He comes from no position. And he manipulates the vote to be king. There's something interesting going on here because this is the first time. They asked Gideon, would you be king? And Gideon said, I don't want to be king. Because up till now, what God's been doing is when you've needed a leader, God's raised up a leader. But now they're thinking, maybe it would be better for us to have a dynasty. Perhaps there's something we can trust more than we can trust God. But... But what Abimelech does is he manipulates the vote. He goes to Shechem, to his mother's people, and says, wouldn't it be better for me to be king? Do you want 70 in charge, or do you want me? Now, the interesting thing is, there was no expectation that you would have 70 in charge, but Abimelech's kind of making people disrupted and disruptive. He's going, it'd be better to have me, wouldn't it? And then the second thing he does is he goes and gets some money and he pays people to vote for him. He manipulates the vote. And then he says to the people of Shechem, I'm one of yours, you know. Don't forget that. And the people of Shechem end up saying, well, all right, fair enough. We'll have you. And then he murders his competitors. He has 70 other competitors And the story goes, he murders them on one stone. In other words, he brings them in one by one and murders all of them. Now, you might think that's outrageous, but we've lived through watching the news. You've seen this happen. Some of you come from cultures and countries where you see that sort of corruption. 70 sons, 70 people are killed. And... His competitors are murdered. And so, he's crowned king. That's how you get to be king. You might come from nowhere, you manipulate things, you murder, and you get rid of the competitors, and then you're crowned. And all is well if you're Abimelech. Until, it's almost like until, one of the 70 you realise you didn't kill. And one man comes and challenges you. And that's Jotham who tells that parable. So on the coronation day, you've got this young guy, the youngest of all of the sons, on the hillside shouting out a parable. And he simply says, once upon a time, the trees wanted to make one of the plants the king. And the trees went to, let's get them right, in order. They went to the olive tree first. And the olive tree says, I'm about something more busy, more important than just being king. My oil anoints people and heals people. 
He goes to the fig tree and says, would you be king? And the fig tree goes, what? And give up all my sweetness? That's what I'm about. And he goes to the uh, vine and says, will you be king? And the vineyard says, uh, the, and the vine says, what? And give up making wine that cheers the heart and brings pleasure to people? You want me to do that just to be king? And then they go to the bramble bush. And the bramble bush goes, or the thorn bush goes, I've got nothing to lose. I'm no one. Let's go. And Jotham, this young leader, shouts out, have you been honourable? Have you done it right? And if you have, blessings. But if you haven't, what's going to happen is fire will come out of the bramble bush and fire will come out from Abimelech and you will be burned out completely. We've not got time to tell the rest of the story, though it is worth reading. Because what happens is there's a problem. God stirs up animosity between the people of Shechem, the people who voted for him, and Abimelech. And what happens next? Abimelech says, I'm going to use my authority, I'm going to use my power, and I will crush you. So they get into a civil war. And we've seen enough of civil wars to know how civil wars go. And there's destruction, and there's mourning, and there's heartache, because one king says, I'm going to take you on. And in the end, Abimelech is defeated. And the way he's defeated, he's laying siege to a city, and a woman on top of the battlement gets a really heavy millstone. I guess she must have had help, otherwise she would, either that or she was... And she tips the millstone off the top of the battlement and it smashes him to pieces. And in the end, he dies. Well, that's the story. And I just want to leave it with you as something to encourage you in, uh, in your ongoing life. I think I, there's clearly nothing else to say about this. I'm sure you can uh, get the best out of it yourself. When you read stories like this in the Bible... Bits like that, what do you, how do you make sense of it? That's the big question, isn't it? Because that's simply me retelling the story and the pattern of the story. But we read through the lens of Jesus. This happened thousands of years before Jesus, and we are Christians. We're following Jesus, and we're trying to work out, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And this part of our Bible, we're trying to work out, how do you make sense of it? So in my mind, I'm now beginning to think, okay, so... What difference does following Jesus make here? That's my first thing. Not what does it mean for me, but my first thing is what difference does it make following Jesus? And you watch that pattern, and I think you see a different pattern. If you've still got a Bible open, can you quickly turn to Philippians 2 with me? Okay, are you with me so far on Abimelech? Yes? All right, you might not know what we're going to do with this yet, but, but can you understand at least what we've, where we've come? All right. So now you have Paul writing to a church in the Roman Empire. Now, this is very important to keep remembering, that actually you're in a powerful empire where everything is status. Okay? So if you were a Roman citizen, it was really important that you knew your place. Okay? 
So if you were a, a freed slave, you were above a slave. If you were a homeowner, you were above a freed, uh, a freed man. If you were a Roman citizen, you were at the top of the pile. If you were a Roman citizen who was in a position of the Senate or in a position of ruling, then you were really at the top of the pile. And the whole story of the Roman Empire is they kept fighting each other because who's in control of this massive empire? And Jesus writes, uh, Paul writes to Christians saying, how do you live in that sort of context? Well, pick it up in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Now, in pretty much every Bible, uh, chapter 2, I mean, sorry, chapter 2. Did I say chapter 1? No, I didn't say anything, did I? <laughs> Just hoping you'd guess, really, I think. <laughs> chapter 2, did I say thank you? Thank you. Thank you. It's very difficult these days to know whether I'm actually losing the plot. So it's nice every now and again when I'm not. So in chapter 2, verse 5, he starts, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. And then in pretty much every Bible, every translation, the next bit looks like either a poem or a song. It's laid out like a poem or a song. And that's simply because for many, many hundreds of years, the big assumption is that this is exactly what this was. This was probably a song that they sung in church. Someone, not Paul, someone had sat down and written out, this is what we believe about Jesus. Listen to how they tell the story. Who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What I want to suggest is you have exactly the opposite picture of what power looks like through the lens of Jesus. He had the highest position. He didn't count equality with God something to be held on to. But he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. And he became obedient to death. And if that weren't enough, even death on a cross. It's really hard to just emphasize how scandalous, how awful it was that Jesus, the Lord of all, would be crucified. It's kind of like if you wanted to humiliate someone as well as kill them, you would crucify them. And it's hard. I don't know what the equivalent would be now. How do you humiliate someone so very much? Well, let me tell you how they've done it in the past. Just a couple of, just a couple of ideas to give you the sense of revulsion of the humiliation of this. In the 17th century particularly, if you wanted to kill those that you disagreed with, you either put them on a, few, on a pyre of wood and you set fire to them. That is not the most efficient way of killing them. But it clearly says 
We're not only killing you, we are purging ourselves of you. We are getting rid of everything. Or you chop their head off and you put it on a spike. And you go there. That's the equivalent. We're much more sophisticated these days, aren't we? Every account of warfare that you read up to and including the present is. How does an invading army humiliate their enemy? They rape all of your women. That's how they do it. Old and young, mothers and daughters, and they make the men watch. That's how you humiliate an enemy. And it's that force that lies behind crucifixion. It's, it's kind of hard just to keep remembering because we see the cross everywhere. And it's kind of like, you know, the cliche is, it's just like a bit of jewellery. But that's what it was like. That's the force of what they did to Jesus. We didn't just kill him. We hung him out to dry. Literally, you can watch him. There's your king. Now what do you think? And the song goes on. But God. In fact, more than but. Therefore, God exalted him. And gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what you've got, I think what you've got going on here is two ways of power. You've got Abimelech, no position, manipulating, murdering, crowned, challenged, God stirring up animosity and defeat. And you've got Jesus, highest position, made himself nothing, obedient to death, death on a cross, but therefore God exalts, gives him the name and every knee must bow. And here's the, here's the stinger. When Paul introduces that second picture, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind as this. That's the picture of what it means to be leader. That's the picture of how to use authority. That's the picture of what, how you actually must do it. You've been watching the news, and every time the news is on, it's almost like we have a vote in the American elections, isn't it? It's like every time, it's like, I almost wish I could vote now because I kind of know a lot about it. And, and you've got, it's, it's like nothing to do with us. And why do they keep reporting it? Well, because it matters. But why do they keep reporting it? Because there's something grotesque about what power looks like. There's something grotesque about what power looks like when you demonize the opposition. There's something grotesque about what power looks like when you objectify women. There's something obscene about power, a power that's gone wrong. And it's easy to point the finger in it and go, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's the wrong. And it makes us feel better because we go, well, we wouldn't be like that. But actually, I wonder whether deep down any of us would recognize that sometimes we're never in the same position. We're never in the same position 
But that idea of how do you use the power and authority you have. Let's just, let's just play with it for a minute. So you begin by thinking, I've got no real authority, so I've got to make things happen. I'm not asking for anything out loud. Next. Do any of you know the temptation to manipulate people around you? Do any of you know that sense of, I know how to get people to do what I want them to do? Do any of you know that the way you react in your family, you can make people do things because of the way you manipulate a situation? In a workplace, any of you know the temptation to manipulate facts or truth or people so you get the things that you want done? Do any of you know what it feels like for that to be done to you? Do any of you know what it feels like to try and get rid of any other, other alternative leader or position? Do any of you long to say, if I could just be in charge around here, things would be better? How do you live when you've got power, when you've got authority? And how do you live with having to respond to people like that? Some of you are in workplaces, and I know because you talk about it, about how difficult it is in a workplace when you feel that people are acting unfairly, unrighteously, out of order with you. Not got loads of time, so let me just quickly say two things. What Paul says is, and remember who he's saying it to, the people in Philippi in the empire with a very structured status quo. He says, we're going to learn here to do life differently. So he says to the Christians, therefore, at the beginning of chapter 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So what Paul does in Philippi, this big, big city in the empire, he goes, we're going to be an alternative society. We're going to value different things. So let me try and just outline what I think some of this means. Firstly, church needs to move from being a crowd to being a community. That's the first thing. It's not enough just to have a whole stack of individuals. You build relationships with one another and you take the risk of that. But the second thing is, then we learn to value people who other people won't value. I want our church to be a place where those with, so with children with special needs, are really welcomed. Now we have children with special needs, really, really complex special needs. And that means that sometimes they shout and they um, respond and they act in ways that you think, oh, are they just being naughty? No, no, no. They've just got really difficult situations that they're dealing with in their own heads. And our church needs to be a place where we value them, not put up with them, but value them. 
where as you get older, you're valued not because of what you do, but because of who you are. And to be honest, we're all going to get older. All you've got to do to get old is just keep on waking up. All right, that's all you've got to do. And then you look over your shoulder and you realise, gosh, I'm old. <laughs> I didn't expect that. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't know. Maybe you never wake up thinking I'm old. It's just other people tell you you're old. <laughs> no, I'm not. I just kept waking up. And you remember back to when you might have been more able and more vigorous and stronger. And I want to say that as you get older, we want you to be valued for who you are, not what you do. You could, you know, there's so many ways of working this out. How do we learn to behave in ways towards each other that model this different way of looking at everything? You can do church like Abimelech if you like. You can. But the Jesus way is better. And then finally... Paul, when he's writing about Jesus, he then goes on, he talks about what it's like together, and then he, but he moves on and he says, so, how are you going to be when you're in the rest of the world? And this is where he begins to land it. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Some of you need to hear that. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. It's a wonderful, it's a very down to earth picture, isn't it? What he's saying is, in your daily life, in your everyday life, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Because actually... Two things. Firstly, because you're following Jesus. Because you're following the one who said, I'll become a servant. I'll become obedient to death, even death on the cross. I don't, Jesus is kind of like, it's that thing. Jesus took the most humiliating place. And God, trusting himself to God, and God exalts him. And so Paul says, so trust God. And that's easy to say and it's hard to do. It's hard to do when other people are putting you down. It's hard to do when you think you're losing. It's hard to do when you think you're hard done by. But the New Testament is full of this. It's almost, almost any page you look at, what Paul is saying is, the way you respond to the situation that you find yourself in is the mark of the way you're following Jesus. And therefore, you can live without grumbling or arguing. And therefore, you can live like stars shining in the sky, offering a different way. You can live using power and using authority in certain ways, or you can do it very differently. And you can begin to live the Jesus way, the way of Jesus. Some of you are dealing with the Abimelech. 
and you're having to make sense of that in your own life. Because you've got power and you've got authority at work or in family. And it's kind of saying, I want to live the way of Jesus. And some of you, it's being done to you. And it's trusting the way of Jesus. Towards the beginning of the service, we talked about this idea of turning our face to Jesus because then, turning our eyes on Jesus, because then we would be used by it. You can't live the way of Jesus without the power of Jesus. You can't live the way of Jesus without the life of Jesus. You can't turn over a new leaf and go, I think I'll just try harder. It's just doomed to failure. And so in following Jesus and saying, I want to follow you, because actually I want to be a good man. I want to be a good father. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good worker. I want to be good. I want to live that way. I can't do it except the power of Jesus. And the really good news is he goes, great. When you know you can't do it on your own, I will give you my life. The crucified one who said, you bring your efforts and I will give you my life. You bring me your best that you've tried so far and I will give you my life. You bring me your mistakes. I will give you my life. And it strikes me that that's the Jesus that we follow. That's the Jesus we follow. The Jesus who says, come and live this way. This is 25 minutes of a sermon. It takes a lifetime to work out. You get wrong most of the time. But it starts on days like this and it continues on days like this where we go, I want to live this way. I want to live this way. I'd love it if you could stand for a moment and we'll pray together and ask the musicians to go back. And I think it'd be great this morning if we could pray with you on your own because... Everybody's situation is so very specific that it's, uh, it's not something you want to just do en masse because it just, in a sense, doesn't take it seriously enough. So in a moment or two when we come and we receive communion together, which is like the moment that we remind ourselves that we bring to him our life and he gives to us we bring to him our situations, we bring our best efforts, we bring our mistakes, and he gives us his life. Communion is a place where we come and go, God, I'm, I'm not all I should be, but I know you want to make me into someone new. And for some of you, that's kind of like an ongoing prayer. And you're not afraid of owning up to being not who you want to be. And the gap between what you know and what you are is huge sometimes for all of us. And we're not ashamed. So we come and we receive the life of Jesus. But for some of you, it might be 
almost like the first time you want to say that. I want to I live like this Jesus. But I need his life. Or you're praying, God, in my workplace, it is such a hard place. And for me to respond and to react and to live in a way that is a different culture, a different way of responding, I can't do it on my own. I need you and I need your spirit. And there are people who would be willing to pray with you that you would have the wisdom and the power and the resilience to be able to live differently in difficult workspaces. There's those two people, those two groups of people that I think I'd like to offer prayer for. If you know you're praying for the first time, Jesus, I want to follow you, then just come and some folks will pray with you and they'll be sitting down at the front and you can just come and they'll sit with you and they'll pray for you. And for those of you for whom particularly the workplace is difficult, we want to pray for you that you'll know the way of Jesus in that context. Lord, we see the way of Abimelech, the power grab. And it's extreme there, but we can see it in our own hearts sometimes, how we use other people and how we have used people for our own ends, how we've tried to get our own way, how we've been frustrated. And Lord, today we want to come and say sorry exactly that we want to pray that your life would be ours because we want to follow the way of Jesus and Lord I want to pray for those of us who are really in just difficult tight situations Lord I pray that we would know your closeness and your blessing in our lives Come Holy Spirit.